Welcome, everyone, to episode 50 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on the podcast today, we close the book on phase three of the MCU as we'll be reviewing Peter Parker's latest outing in Spider-Man Far From Home. But before we sink our teeth into that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? How was your 4th of July? Uh, it was uh, pretty exciting, actually. You know, one of the more exciting uh, moments of my summer. You know, I, w- I was just sitting here thinking about how I feel like I haven't had anything exciting to report, and that's probably uh, summed up by the fact that I was noticing uh, recently that I haven't had haven't posted on Instagram this entire summer, which I think is in our society, in our culture nowadays, how you uh, determine whether someone is uh, living an interesting life or doing interesting things, uh, judging by their Instagram posts. But I haven't had a single one this summer, so I think that uh, maybe says a lot about my summer. However, uh, relatively speaking, my 4th of July was pretty exciting because I did get to go to the Alamo Draft House Cinema here in Raleigh. Um, of course, this is uh, about 20 or 25 Alamo Draft Houses, though, I think, um, and, or at least 20 or 25 cities that have them. Uh, and it's just a really cool theater overall. Like the you walk in, at least this is how the one in Raleigh is laid out in the lobby is like a part bar, part like video store, like the, you can get miracles. They have like stuff on VHS, all these really random old VHS uh, tapes, which is cool just to sort of uh, peruse after the movie. Uh, and then, you know, you watch the movie and you have servers who bring you a meal and, and drinks and stuff that you want to uh, order from the menu. Uh, and so I got to go and watch Midsommar with a uh, sold out crowd there. Every seat was full in the theater and uh, enjoyed a nice dinner there. So, um, you know, all things considered, uh, not the traditional way I usually spend the 4th of July, but uh, I, I think I, I made the most of, uh, you know, what I, would, what I could here in Raleigh uh, with, you know, having most of friends and family uh, in, in disparate places and, and not being able to spend the holiday with them. I think I was able to uh, salvage the salvage it um, regardless. Yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely shocked to hear you say that watching the what some have called the most disturbing movie of all time isn't your typical Fourth of July. But have some. You know, I guess we all live different lives. Most disturbing movie of all time. Have people really been saying that? I mean, it's disturbing, but I don't know about all time. Scott Mance is saying it on for your consideration. The most disturbing movie of all time. He couldn't That's sleep the night after he saw it. Well, I'm not sure if he's seen Cannibal Holocaust. Though. Cool. Well, we will save the rest of that uh, expose for uh, that episode, because uh, today, like you just mentioned, we're going to be reviewing the 23rd entry in the MCU and the conclusion of Phase 3 following the universe-changing events of Avengers Endgame, maybe? Anyway, directed by Spider-Man Homecoming uh, director John Watts and set eight months after the Avengers' final battle with Thanos, Far From Home drops us immediately into a world without Tony Stark Steve Rogers, or Natasha Romanoff, and shows us this world through the eyes of Spider-Man himself, Peter Parker, played by Tom Holland. Hoping to refresh his life with just a little bit of normalcy, Peter Parker uh, focuses on his upcoming two-week field trip to Europe with his classmates, including his best friend Ned, played by Jacob Batalon, and his crush MJ, played by Zendaya. However, Peter's plan to use this Euro trip to confess his feelings to MJ goes awry when Sam Jackson's Nick Fury enlists Spider-Man's help to fight the growing threat of the Elementals, four 
giant supernatural beings, each of which wield the power of one of the basic elements, earth, fire, air, and water. Spider-Man isn't alone, however, in this fight, as Quentin Beck, a superpowered man from another universe, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, has already stopped two of the four elementals when he meets Peter in Venice while trying to stop the water elemental. From there, it's a race against time to stop the fourth and final elemental from destroying the Earth, while Peter tries to balance his responsibility as Spider-Man, especially now that his mentor Tony Stark is gone, with the pull of quote-unquote normal high school life. Scott is far from home, a worthy follow-up to both Avengers Endgame and Spider-Man Homecoming, which are, in my opinion, two of the best films in the MCU. Or do you think Phase 3 ends with less of a bang and more of a whimper? Uh, well, first of all, Scott, I'll say that I think, uh, unless you have objections, let's talk about spoilers, you know, talk about a movie like, without uh, getting into spoilers, because, you know, most things are probably considered a spoiler for this movie for, you know, hardcore MCU fans. Getting getting the spoilers out of the way early. Sorry, everyone who listened to the first five minutes without having <laughs> without having any spoilers. But uh, come back after you see Far From Home. I mean, this movie's making like 180 million. This, yeah. this, this first week at the box office. So you probably have already seen it if you're listening to this, but maybe you haven't. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You've you've seen it by now. If you're a hardcore MCU fan, you've definitely seen it. Probably more than once, to be honest. But yeah, you know, Scott, when I went into this movie, I made the joke to you a couple of weeks ago about when the first screenings of, of Far From Home happened, and I was reading reviews, and I. You know, everyone was talking about how amazing the post credit scenes were. And I was like, man, you know, I, I said to you, I was like, I think what I'm getting right now is that I'm going to love the post credit scene scenes in this movie and maybe be a little bit disappointed by the movie. I think that's just be- and I think that was just because, you know, this movie on paper, like, was awesome, looked awesome. Like, you have my favorite, personal favorite uh, superhero in Spider-Man. You have Jake Gyllenhaal, like one of my favorite actors right now. Uh, in this movie as Mysterio, or the coming of age blend uh, with the superhero action that, of course, is something that I really enjoy. So it, this was a movie that I was really excited for. And so I, I guess I had the mindset of, you know, I can't possibly live up to uh, what I'm expecting from it, right? Um, and so, so that's why I think, uh, you know, I expected that I would love the post credit scenes and be a little bit disappointed by the movie. And I think after having seen it now, I think it comes the other way around. Um, I think I was, the, the post credit scenes, which we'll talk about a little bit later, on we're we're good but not quite the mind-blowing experience that i expected uh but the movie however i think is great Um, i think that what the spider-man movies really represent in the mcu and what they have done such a great job with and particularly director john watts is acting as palate cleansers right the first first time around with spider-man homecoming i think it was sort of a palate cleanser from all of the spider-man movies that we had gotten right because there there definitely was a feeling when spider-man homecoming came out that you know, do we really need another Spider-Man? I mean, we had the Raimi trilogy in the early 2000s. Then we had the two Andrew Grill uh, movies, Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2. And then, you know, three, four years after that. Um, and after it must be said, I think most, a lot of Spider-Man fans, a lot of um, superhero movie fans would say that those two movies were on the disappointing side. And even, of course, going back to Spider-Man 3, which was something that was disappointing too. I think there was definitely a feeling going into Homecoming. I, do we really need another Spider-Man movie? It's been a long time since we've gotten a good Spider-Man movie. But what John Watts did, I think, is say, you know, we're not going to play. We're not going to do a Spider-Man movie like seen before. This we're not do the origin story. We're not going to really make a big deal about him maintaining his secret identity, right? Because you know, Ned finds out that he's that Peter is Spider-Man a half hour into the movie, and Aunt May is found out by the end of the movie. So uh, they play so much into that as well. You know, they didn't do the origin. We see a different sort of MJ than we've ever seen, a different Aunt May. Like, everything about the movie just felt a little bit different. Uh, And so I think, like I said, it was a good palate cleanser. 
from all of the other Spider-Man movies that we got when we came out. And then Far From Home, of course, as you you know set up, was faced with the unenviable task of following uh, Avengers Endgame and you know needing to be a palate cleanser from what was definitely one of the darkest and most intense movies in the entire MCU. I mean, the biggest movie ever, quote unquote. Um, and so like, how do you follow that? And I think what John Watts does here that is so impressive is he manages to, Spider-Man movie, with all of the things that we love about Spider-Man movies, the fun, breezy tone, the high school drama stuff. And yet at the same time, we never lose sense of the stakes, where we are in the MCU, like post Endgame, and, you know, all of the big emotional moments, all of the moments which are more, you know, you know introspective and, and serious, um, still get the proper treatment and, and uh, respect that they deserve in the movie, even though this is a fun, breezy Spider-Man movie. And so I think John Watts strikes that balance incredibly well. Um, and I think I did enjoy this movie more than Spider-Man Homecoming because I think what this movie, what I really liked about this movie is actually it reminded me a lot of Spider-Man 2, the Sam Raimi's second film, which is still my second favorite Spider-Man movie after Spider-Verse. Um, in, in the sense that I think what what Peter is going through here is a real sort of identity crisis um, in the sense that he's asking himself, does he really want to be Spider-Man or, you know, does he really want to take on the kind of burden that maybe he's being asked to take on now in the post Tony Stark, uh, post Endgame world? Is this something that he's ready for as Peter Parker, the teenage kid who still wants to have a normal, normal life and have a relationship with his friends, have a relationship with MJ uh, and his aunt, you know, is he ready for this? And, you know, in Spider-Man two, we saw it at an extreme, you know, to the point where, where Peter says, you know, I'm giving up Spider-Man being all, I'm giving up being Spider-Man altogether. And we don't really get that in Spider-Man Far From Home, right? He says, I want to take a break. And of course, he's unable to take a break. But I think the questions that it asks are deeper and more mature than we got in Spider-Man Homecoming. I think Tom Holland's performance is his best performance he's given us Spider-Man thus far. Um, it's And it's also a lot more mature than we from him. And I think that's exactly what the movie calls for. So uh, that's something I think that gives it a leg up over Spider-Man Homecoming. I also think Jake Gyllenhaal is fantastic um, as Mysterio. You know, we, we lifted the spoilers uh, at the beginning. So, uh, you know, we, we do find out about halfway through that he is the villain in this movie, as many people expected. You know, if you're familiar with Mysterio, it won't come as a huge surprise that he doesn't have to be the villain, even even though they do set him up in the first 45 minutes to an hour of this movie as being an ally to Peter, as maybe being the person who will take Tony Stark's crown or who Peter feels is deserving of, uh, you know, stepping up and leading the Avengers. Uh, but of course he doesn't turn out to be that. And I think that some of Gyllenhaal's scenes are probably some of the weakest in the movie. I think there's, he's given some very expositional speeches at certain points in the movie, but he's such a good actor that he sells them uh, and makes them to be a lot better than uh, they should have been. I think there's a, a little bit of less of an emphasis on this character in the end, but I think, you know, in the second half of the movie, but I think by that point, uh, Gyllenhaal has really done the heavy lifting uh, with this performance. And he does a great job of keeping us guessing with this character and having an interesting motivation, right? That we haven't seen in the MCU really before. It's kind of, you know, this is what I was thinking in the moment. And then I heard a couple other people point this out. It's kind of a better version of what they tried to do with the Mandarin in Iron Man 3 to an extent, uh, you know, with this character who isn't really who he says he is and is in fact just, uh, you know, creating the illusion that he is actually the person that he claims to be. And so, you know, I like Iron Man 3. I thought the Mandarin was fine, but I do think that the, he's given a better treatment here in terms of what they do with Mysterio. 
and the high school stuff really works. Um, I think that there's more of it in this movie. Something else I liked about it over Spider Coming. I think that all of the supporting characters. I'm not sure there's one with the better supporting cast. They're you know they're really funny. I think that Zendaya is fantastic, and the chemistry between her, her and Tom Holland, and really the chemistry between Tom Holland and everybody in this cast is uh, one of the strong points. So yeah, this movie was an absolute blast. It's exactly what the MCU needed after Endgame, and you know I'm happy to say out of it that. While I expected to be disappointed, I really wasn't disappointed at all at the end. I think it's uh, a great movie. Yeah, I agree. I agree that it is a, a great movie. I think that it doesn't quite live up to to Homecoming for me, but it sounds like that's probably a, a separate discussion between the two of us to to hash out our differences on, on Homecoming because I, I absolutely adore that movie. I think that the main difference, just to sum it up quickly, between this movie and Homecoming is I just think Homecoming was tighter and knew more of what it wanted to be and what it was trying to be. Not that Far From Home doesn't execute what it tries to well, but it does spread itself a little bit more thin across kind of multiple arcs. And I think you see those holes and those fringes kind of fray a little bit around that character of Mysterio. Cause I think at its core, this movie wants to be similar to homecoming and that, and what is more similar to homecoming is what you get with like the high school element. Uh, For for me, I know that you would say that there's that in this movie, you get more of this, but I think that the overall, uh, what's the right way to say? I think, I think that, the feel of the movie is more stretched than I thought homecoming was. Cause in spite of maybe you didn't get scene for scene or minute by minute, you didn't get that the holistic high school feel as frequently in homecoming as you did in this movie. But I think that like the ethos of homecoming was that feel. And I think this movie isn't quite as uh, tight in, in that respect. And I think that's where the differences are because, I mean, you talk about Mysterio getting some expositional scenes and, and really key moments of the movie that, you know, at first, you know, for maybe the first 30 seconds to 45 seconds or even a minute of those scenes, I was like, okay, this is fine. I don't mind this too much. And then it drags on for three more minutes each time. And I'm like, wow, this is such a long exposition. This doesn't feel necessary. It doesn't, it doesn't really seem like this needs to go on and on as as cool as some of maybe the illusion tech scenes might've been. They do really linger for, for a little bit longer than you'd like. I mean, that being said, you're absolutely right. Like the, the Euro trip element of this, the high school field trip abroad, element to this where you have the dynamics between Peter and all you know, so many of his classmates between Ned and Betty between uh, Peter and MJ between Peter and Brad between Peter and Ned like the, it, all of it works really well from from that sense it, it, it had you laughing a lot one of the things that I thought I have seen this movie twice and one of the things I thought watching it the first time was that the, the, the I didn't really I guess appreciate the writing as much as maybe I did the second time and that was because it really felt that they were trying to make like joke after joke every 30 seconds in this movie, which I still want to stand by. I think it is true. They really do try to go for a lot of jokes to keep this as lighthearted as possible, even in some of the moments where I thought, hey, you know, you could just cut this out and it would be OK. But the second time I watched it, I think I also had a uh, more uh, pleasing crowd in that they weren't laughing at literally every 30 seconds in the movie. Like I remember there were points in the movie or periods mm-hmm. of time in the movie when I was watching it the first time on. Monday night that people literally were just laughing for two or three minutes straight, like line after line. I'm like, guys, this isn't even funny. Like this isn't meant to be funny. This isn't funny. Like, I don't know why people are laughing and people laughed a little bit less. And I think that that made me less annoyed the second time I was watching it. So there goes to show that the crowd can make a big difference sometimes in these movies. Uh, that being said, no, but to sum things up, I do think that this is a really, really good movie. Doesn't quite live up to homecoming, but as I kind of alluded to in from the outset, homecoming is my second favorite movie in the MCU. So that's not a, a big hit on this film. I do disagree though that I, I do think the post credit scenes 
are are a big deal uh, more more of a big deal than i think maybe you gave them credit for at least from my perspective i think that that mid-credit scene is groundbreaking for the mcu and i think will probably be a huge formative moment for what we get going forward i don't think that's going to be the linchpin of fate phase four but when we're thinking about as of right now pre-san diego comic-con not knowing anything at all that's that's in the upcoming lineup in a in concrete ways for the mcu knowing that peter parker's identity has been released and he, that's going to be a critical part of a, any sort of avengers t- uh, team up that or whatever that future of that might be you know it's going to be the future of any spider-man movie that we get i think it's such a huge deal and it's probably the most uh momentous you know credit scene that we've gotten in a, in a long time if not ever in the mcu and as for the second one I think that, well, maybe not as groundbreaking for the universe, although, you, of course, I think I could understand an argument for it being a big deal, too. I think that the fact that Nick Fury wasn't actually Nick Fury in this movie, in fact, instead it was uh, Talos and Soren, who are scrolls playing Colby Smulders' Maria Hill and Sam Jackson's Nick Fury in this film. I think it actually explains a lot of what I originally thought were sort of weird narrative um, directions that the movie went and having... Nick Fury seem a little bit less sharp and a little bit more trusting than you'd normally uh, expect him to be. So in that sense, while you have the mid credit scene, which is incredibly forward looking for the MCU. And I thought, well, I mean, my both times I watched the movie, my you know theater kind of went crazy for that mid credit scene, especially with J.K. Simmons being uh, J. Jonah Jameson. I think for the post credit scene, that's sort of retrospective looking and explaining to you how, you know, that thing that you might have had a question mark around while you watch this film. Well, you know what? That was intentional. That was planned. And this is why. And it would be shocking to me if that doesn't come up in other uh, future MCU movies as well. And, and, you know, I will say this, that as much as they tease Nick Fury having a vacation on, you know, this scroll ship, I have a, I have a feeling that Nick Fury's probably up to something and it's probably important for a future MCU movie. So I think in that sense, it's probably going to be pretty telling for future movies that we're going to see in the MCU there as well. We'll talk about all those things more in depth later, Scott, but I think now it's time to jump into, Oh, good. Well, let me, let me just get on the record real quick and be clear. I, I agree with, uh, you know, everything you're saying about those credit scenes. I think they are absolutely important. Like, you know, like you said, I, I agree with um, your takes on both scenes. I just think that my mind wasn't blown right in terms of, um, I mean, I, I don't know what I expected. J.K. Simmons, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson didn't blow your mind. Oh, I love that. I mean, that was my favorite part of either of the credit scenes. But, um, you know, I, when I hear mind blowing, I don't know what I was expecting. Maybe I was thinking like they were going to, you know, introduce like the Fantastic Four or X-Men or something crazy like that. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it just wasn't like oops, that's all I could think of as I left the theater. So I just different expectations, I guess. But I agree with your what you're saying. Yeah, it sounds like expectations may have may have differed there then because I didn't expect that they'd be introducing yeah. X-Men or Fantastic Four. But I can understand how people like every critic saying it's mind blowing could be that. But, you know, within I didn't know what I had to expect either. I didn't expect something to, to that effect. But what we did get is the fact that J. Jonah Jameson playing a role like 20 years ago with, you know, the original three Spider-Man movies coming back and appearing uh, as that character in the MCU, I think that, that I think that's what people are talking about mind blowing. And then, you know, the second part of that mid credit scene, of course, being that, you know, Spider-Man's identity, although maybe loosely played with a little bit in this franchise relative to the other Spider-Man iterations that we've seen in the last two decades. I think it's still a big deal that now everyone knows who Peter Parker is. And again, we can get 
uh, there it is. The mid the, the credit scene's already absorbing our conversation. We're not sending it talking about the movie. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump in now. And we'll start with, of course, the acting as we always do. Uh, I kind of grouped them together in two different categories. The first being the high schoolers. And of course, we have to start with Tom Holland, Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Scott, you've already talked about how Tom Holland's this is Tom Holland's best performance as Spider-Man for you. Uh, you know, one of the things that I liked about this, just I guess to zoom out for a second before we jump into this particular the particulars of this movie is you talked mm-hmm. about Spider-Man Homecoming not having to be the origin story and John Watts kind of sidestepping that. And that's because they got to do that in Civil War. You know, they told you they introduced Spider-Man and they told you who he was and they told you that's all you need to know. You didn't know need to know his backstory. And so Homecoming got to jump right in here. I think you get even more of that flavor here, dropping you straight in, not necessarily trying to give you uh, dwell too much on the past, so to speak. Y- yes, this movie, of course, is about Peter overcoming uh, the the loss of, of Iron Man. But one thing that I think that I really ended up appreciating about this movie is that it didn't dwell on that too long. It didn't feel melodramatic. It felt like it hit those notes of missing Tony in the right ways, whether it's, you know, the moments where he looks up and sees one of the thousand murals that are, you know, wallpapered across the, across all the different cities he goes to or whether it's that one emotional moment on the plane with Happy there. He talks about how he misses him. It's not something that is just hammered home over and over and bludgeoning you over the head. And I think that Tom Holland portrays that really well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how it both you thought his performance was as an aftermath to the events of Endgame, but also how he deals with everything else that's going on in this movie. Yeah, and I mean, I think what you're describing there is a maturity, not in just the way, you know, not only in the way that they handle the story, but in the way that, uh, you know, Peter Parker is handling the death of Tony Stark. And I think that's, you know, the, the, the buzzword for me as to why I like this performance more. I think I've struggled a little bit with Tom Holland in the past because, and, you know, at the end of the day, for whatever reason, maybe it's nostalgia. Um, I think that Tobey Maguire will always be my favorite fan. Um, again, maybe it's nostalgia. I don't know, but... Um, so, so that maybe was a little bit of my barrier to entry with Tom Holland, but I think I have struggled a little bit with his character being almost too childlike. And I understand that he's a teenager, right? I mean, of course, you know, that's Peter Park. Um, that's what's different about him the, than the other adventures. But even still, like he was acting more like at, at times, like he was nine or 10 years old, not as like, you know, a 15 or 16 year old high school kid, like he's supposed to be. Uh, and, but I think finally we get, um, you know, the, the most consistent portrayal of Peter that we've seen in this movie uh, from Tom Holland. And I think that, um, like you said, he really makes those emotional scenes count. And like I said up top, I think one of his best strengths as an actor is that he makes everyone around him better. Um, and, you know, he plays off of every character really well. Um, and I think that that's another, way. you know, it is an area where Tom Holland has a leg up over Tobey Maguire. And at the end of the day, he still has that fun sort of like whiz bang childlike spirit um, that, you know, we we don't want to completely evaporate away from Peter Parker and Spider-Man. I mean, that's, you know, one again, one of the hallmarks of Spider-Man is is that attitude. But I think that he felt more like a real character, a real teenager, a real person in this movie um, than he has in really any of the others. And that's what I appreciated the best. Yeah, I mean, for me, again, this probably speaks back to my sentiments about Homecoming being one of my favorite movies in the MCU. But I I like Tom Holland from the beginning. You know, you talk about how this is the version in this particular movie that spoke the most to you as a, as a you know real person, as an adult, as a human being that this version of Peter Parker. Uh, for me, I think I also saw that in Homecoming and I think I see it. Uh, that evolution come through here. So it's not just that, you know, one or the other was more authentic to being a real person. For me, 
I just viewed it as an evolution. I mean, he is an immature 15 year old in Civil War in Spider-Man Homecoming. And what you see, I think, particularly through the evolution of his arc in uh, Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame is that he's found himself in situations where that immaturity, although maybe it's, you know, just gets by in Spider-Man Homecoming. He like has that mentorship and has Tony Stark to look out for him and and ultimately, you know, have his back when he needs it. But by the end of Infinity War, when, of course, Peter gets dusted, and then by the end of Infi- uh, Endgame, when Tony Stark has passed, what you get is Tom Holland being forced to grow up not just in the guise of Spider-Man, which is, of course, true, but also in the guise of being Peter Parker. And I think that that evolution, uh, you see that fully completed here in Far From Home. You know, yes, he he longs maybe for that normalcy of life that I alluded to in the from you know, in my you know lead in here, my primer for this discussion. But I think that that yearning is something that we all feel at times, whether it's rose colored glasses or not, you know, of course we're a little bit older than Tom Holland or Peter Parker is supposed to be in this movie. But I think we can all think about how, Oh, well, you know what? I really wish I had that experience and could go back to that. And I think ultimately the story of this movie is Peter Parker being forced in and taking responsibility for things that he feels like he has to take responsibility for because otherwise no one else will, but also realizing that, you know, he wants to be normal or at least wants to have some part of him that is quote unquote normal and have that, you know, quote unquote normal experience in in high school. And I think that that maturity and that yearning and that angst is something that's maybe that where I see that evolution. And I think that to your point, exactly, Tom Holland plays it so well. And I think that I've loved him in every Spider-Man movie and, and all of the MCU movies that he's been in so far. And I think that that's just further cements him that this character is not just running in place and not standing still, but evolving. And, you know, as knock on wood that Sony and, and Marvel can continue to play nice. So we get plenty of plenty of Spider-Man appearances and other MCU movies and more Spider-Man movies uh, in the MCU going forward, because Tom Holland is an absolute gem. One of the best people to have in the MCU right now. And I, I don't know if I could, if I could praise him more highly uh, in this role. And just to briefly touch on it, even though we've already alluded to it, I agree. Like his chemistry with everyone, it's, it's amazing. Like, I, you know, I wondered whether or not he'd be able to lead a movie in Homecoming because I think one of the things that he does so best is allow all the other talent in Homecoming, especially, is all, allow all the other talent um, to really take center stage and you know step back and step far when it needed to happen uh, without having mm-hmm. to headline the movie. Of course, because you have Robert Downey Jr., you have Michael Keaton, you have. Uh, Marissa Tomei, you have even John Favreau, right? Like he has his moments in that in that movie too. And so it, this is a movie where he's asked to do a little bit more of the lifting, but still, you have someone like Jake Gyllenhaal, like Sam Jackson, appear more in this movie. Even Zendaya, you know, uh, we're going to talk about her in just a second, but you have her there as well. And I think that he continues to show how well, how good he is at stepping back to allow other people to take center stage and steal the spotlight when it makes sense for them to. And then step forward when he needs to. I think he's stepping into that role. It'll be interesting to see if we ever get a Spider-Man movie where he does truly take center stage the whole time and have to bear the full burden. Uh, I don't. Maybe the MCU is never. You never really have to do that in the MCU. Maybe I'm not sure because uh, there are so many high-profile actors and so many great characters. But it is maybe one of the question marks that we have about Tom Holland. But at this point, I'm just so on board with the Spider-Man that I don't. I don't know if that really matters to me all that much. All right. Zendaya as MJ. I already alluded to her chemistry, of course, with Peter Parker and how, you know, probably the residual feeling from Homecoming is that I just wanted more of Zendaya. I'll say by the end of this movie, I also just wanted more of Zendaya. And that more speaks to just how awesome uh, Zendaya is as MJ in this movie. Scott, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she is fantastic. I think that, 
you know, maybe another slight knock on homecoming was that number one, I think they, they tried too hard. I mean, like they're obviously going for a different feel with MJ, but I think maybe they leaned into it a little bit too hard in the, in homecoming with like, Oh, I'm edgy. Like, you know, I'm not like the other girls. Um, and I mean, so on the one hand, I think you had that. And on the other hand, like you said, I think there just wasn't enough for her to do in the first movie because, you know, for, for the movie, for most of the movie, Peter is going after Laura Harrier's character, Liz. Um, and so, she, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, the whole but, movie, not even know, most of the movie. There's, the there's movie. not a lot for her to do. But now, of course, she is the main focus for Peter. Um, this is one of the main through lines in the movie is him trying to win over MJ. And, you know, he has this plan um, to give her a ring and all of this. But I think what Zendaya does so well with the performance is... <laughs> give her a necklace, just to be clear. He's not proposing to her. Yeah, sorry. I don't know why I said ring. But uh, necklace, yeah. Um, with a black dolly on it, because that's her favorite murder. Um <laughs> But I think what she does so well in this movie is, well, number one, I think that they lean as heavily into it. They strike a better balance of, uh, you know, the edgy side of her, the different side of her. Um, and, you know, her as just a more normal teenage girl. And I think that the other thing she does really well, is she bounces like, on the one hand, her character is really like confident in who she is, right? Like she's confident enough to talk about how, oh, Black Dolly is my favorite murder. And, you know, all these other sort of strange sort of edgy comments that come up left field a little bit sometimes when her character is talking with people. When it comes to like relationships specifically, like the fact that, you know, definitely seems like she has a crush on Peter as well. Um, you know, in interacting with Peter, um, she's a lot more shy and like a lot more unsure of herself because, uh, you know, it seems like, you know, we don't know a lot of her backstory, but it seems like uh, she doesn't have a lot of people in her life who, um, she's close to. And so trying to get close to someone like Peter is hard for her because, um, you know, it's, it's not something she has a lot of experience with. And I think she does that. She, she pulls off that balance very deftly. And one small moment, which I really liked that I think demonstrates the balance that she strikes here is at the end of the movie, right? When they kiss for the first time. Um, and it's not like the sexy movie star kiss, you know, that we see in like the first Spider-Man movie, right? Between, uh, between Kirsten Dunst and Tobey Maguire. It's like very, she's very unsure of herself. It's like a little, small little pet. And even when they uh, kiss more, after, a couple more times after that, it's it's not like your full on make out again, like you see in a, a, you know, big Hollywood movie. And I think that just feels so more realistic and so much truer to not just who Zendaya is, but to who this Tom Holland character is, because as well, because they're both, you know, sort of walking on eggshells this whole time when it comes to interacting with each other. So I think they did a great job. And you know, I like that she knows he's Spider-Man. I think, uh, you know, obviously everyone knows now, but I think it's going to make for a more interesting dynamic uh, going forward because, of course, that was what happened in the Raimi trilogy as well. And Spider-Man 3, I think, really sort of bungled their re the relationship between Peter and MJ post-MJ finding out that he was Spider-Man. So I'll, I'll be interested to see where this relationship goes uh, in the context of what MJ knows now. But yeah, Zendaya's great. Yeah, no, I, I think that what I, I guess to maybe to maybe just skip to the end and what I hope for a, a movie going forward as much as I love Zendaya and I, and I do like this MJ character. It's very endearing. And of course it's weird and awkward way that you expect, but I, like my hopes and what we've seen from Tom Holland's Peter Parker is I hope we see that evolution in MJ. Like we were barely introduced to her at all in homecoming. And I think that what you see here is a, is a case of someone who yes, is trying to figure out who she is and, and get, you know, acquainted with, getting close to people, right? That's a weird thing to say, but that's kind of the, the vibe that I get, you know, even through interactions with her classmates, it's clear that as, even as much as Brad Davis, or I forget what his last, I think it's Brad Davis played by Remy High's character is like trying to get with her. Um, you know, she's clearly 
struggles connecting with the other classmates compared to, you know, Ned or, or Betty who have like more conversations with other people in the class throughout the course of the film. It's like, you know, when you see MJ, it's usually either talking to Peter or talking or talking to Brad in this movie. And that's of course set up uh, for that little weird uh, dynamic uh, conflict there at subplot of the film. But the, and so, and so moving forward, I really hope that in the next movie we get to deal with MJ, of course, both, trying to deal with the aftermath of what we get in the post credit scenes from far from home, but also evolving as a person too. Cause you know, yes, you know, you could say that Peter Par- Parker is a still awkward in far from home. Absolutely. He is, but it's a more a slightly more mature, uh, relatable awkward than the, I'd say maybe a little bit more over the top, uh, awkward cringiness from MJ, which again, I, I'm not, I don't want to hit him that too hard. Cause I don't think it's too much of a negative, but if we were to get another full length feature film, with that character having said the same, I think that'd be really disappointing. That's of course talking about in the future, but that's all to say is that this character has a really good, it's at a really good place right now. And because I like the performance so much, I like Zendaya in this role. I like what they're doing with this character. I just want to see it evolve over time as well and not stay the same here. Uh, But otherwise I think I just echo all your sentiments. Yeah. You know, I trust them at this point. They made a leap with this character for, I feel like, so I don't see why they can't do it again with Spider-Man three. Yeah. Totally agree. All right. Someone who you can maybe say <laughs> changes in, in, a, in, a, in a way for more comedic extent is, of course, Jacob Batalon's Ned going from uh, single American teenagers in Europe, bachelors in Europe. That's what it is. Bachelors in Europe to uh, relationship man to uh, mature, grown apart adults man uh, over the course of the film through his relationship with Betty. And uh, of course, played for, for pretty good laughs, I'd say, uh, throughout the course of the film. I think probably given a little bit more of a minor role in this film, he's not really the guy in the chair in this movie as he kind of was in Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, even maybe alluded to a little bit on the nose in this film uh, as well, that that isn't the case anymore for him. But Scott, what did you think of Jacob Batalon's performance in this one? Uh, I don't know what you thought of him in Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, but what did you think of him in this one? Yeah, you know, I I think... I mean, I, I really liked him in Spider-Man Homecoming. I think one of the best parts of Spider-Man Homecoming for me. I think you're right to say he's a little bit more on the sidelines here. I do think that the stuff with him and Anguri Rice is very funny. Um, their relationship early on, I think it's very funny. I think maybe it runs out of steam a little bit at the end. Which is um, why they killed but it. <laughs> I, I do. Well, yeah, but I, that's what I was going to say. I, I do actually really like the ending of this, uh, of their of you know their arc in this movie and their relationship. Uh, because the way that they break off is very amicable right uh, there's no hard feelings between them there's no like the petty teenage drama that uh, you might see in another movie so i like that um because it felt right again uh but i guess i would have liked to see more of ned and sort of you know his um, relationship with peter and its evolution now that more people are learning you know his secret identity because for most of spider-man homecoming like you know it was between the two of them right he was the one who knew he's peter's best friend um i think it was you know something that kept them together and, and, you know, strengthened their bond. But now, you know, Aunt May knows, uh, MJ finds out and he's pursuing MJ pretty heavily throughout the movie. Ned, of course, is off with his own girlfriend. Um, and so they're, you know, they're separated a lot more, I think, than they are in Spider-Man Homecoming. And I guess I would have liked, you know, another scene or two of maybe um, his reaction. And we do get like a scene, but a, a small moment between him and MJ um, after he learns that MJ has found out. And, you know, he's like, well, I found out first. Um, for laughs, but I guess I would have liked to see a more uh, serious look at, um, you know, what his feelings are about the fact that, uh, you know, the inner circle, so to speak, has uh, expanded. And now it's, I mean, it's completely expanded because everyone knows. So uh, maybe we'll see more with uh, that character going forward. Uh, but, uh, you know, really good job, really fun character. Um, another great member of the ensemble. 
that's that's pretty fair, right? To say that we did, we get less of him in this movie, and maybe what would have been nice is to see how that relationship develops with the the new characters, with the new characters find out, mm-hmm. you know, first MJ, and then of course the world. So you know, naturally, the next character after MJ, the world. So yeah, and I think that that's it's probably going to be set up. I mean, if that's the direction they want to go, it's set up well for the third, you know, Spider-Man standalone movie to explore those relationships with the people that Peter is closest to and, and how that unveiling of his identity affects all of his relationships. I mean, it's something that you've already alluded to when you were talking about MJ. And I think that that's extremely true for his relationship with Ned, where, you know, their relationship grew and thrived in Homecoming because Ned was the one and only member of that inner circle, the only person that Peter could really talk about that with besides Tony Stark. And to actually then have that expand and, you know, Ned no longer be the go-to, still be in the circle, but no longer the go-to with, you know, by the end of the film with MJ learning about it. I think that that we, we get a glimpse and you, and you mentioned this yourself that, you know, his reaction was, you know, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of like trying to alpha male it, be like, Oh, I knew first, like I'm better than, you know, I'm better because Peter's trusted me for longer, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, we'll see how that all plays out. It's it's tough to speculate on whether they'll even go down that route because again, they they kind of push Ned uh to a little bit more to the fringe in this movie. And um, I'm I'm sure whatever next Spider-Man standalone movie there is, there'll be you know a character like Jake Gyllenhaal that didn't take up most of the screen time um and, and take center stage as well. So we'll see we'll see if we get that in the future. But it would be nice. But ultimately, sometimes there are just too many characters to juggle in a two-hour movie. Yeah. All right. Speaking of too many characters to juggle in a two hour movie, uh, there are a lot of other high schoolers in there as well. We you know, you mentioned Angry Rice's Betty. There's also Tony Revolori's Flash, who's played for jokes. I mentioned Remy High, who plays the post blip Brad Davis, who's grown up, but also played by like a 32 year old, which is really weird. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was very noticeable how much older Brad it, Davis it was. was. Very noticeable. Yeah. Uh, any other anyone else you want to shout out of these high schoolers before we move on to the adults? Yeah, I don't really have much to add. I will say Tony Revolori's character, Flash, I think, like you said, he is played mostly for laughs, but there was a small moment at the end, right, when he comes back to the airport and his chauffeur is there and he's like, oh, so my mother couldn't make it. And there's kind of this like, oh, moment, like in the theater when I saw that, like, you know, you kind of feel bad for him a little bit because even though he is kind of a douchebag, like, you know, maybe there's a reason why. Maybe it's because um, of what's going on in his own life. So I don't know if that's something they're going to play into more, Um, but it was if they don't, it would, it was kind of a weird moment to include in the movie because I didn't really find it funny or really consistent with the comedic tone that they took with this character in the rest of the movie. But uh, I guess that's the only thing I really have to say, uh, you know, about the rest of these characters. I agree. I totally agree. It was very weird to include it, but I also just don't see them going down that path. Yeah. We'll see. Seems like a lot for them to handle. Uh, yeah. There's just, too, at some point you just too many mm-hmm. characters. If you're going to add new ones as well, but anyway, mo- moving on to the adults, speaking of a new character, Jake Gyllenhaal's Quentin Beck, AKA Mysterio Scott, you mentioned that, you know, he really does the most with what he's given, which for me was disappointingly, not very much by the end of the movie. It's probably never a good thing when I sat back at the end of the film and thought about it and said, you know, damn, it really would have been a lot better if Mysterio hadn't been the bad guy in this movie. He would have been such an amazing replacement for Tony uh, at the end of the day, if he did lead up the Avengers moving forward and we got Jake Gyllenhaal in like 10 MCU movies. Uh, that's more wishful thinking than anything, of course, because he is ultimately the villain. He is the bad guy. He is manipulating Peter, Nick Fury, uh, Kobe, you know, Maria Hill, everyone on the shield side of things. He's manipulating them all because he's butthurt about Tony uh, not liking his, not using the tech his tech that he created at Stark Industries uh, in, in the way that he had hoped 
it would be used. And for me, that just felt like a really underwhelming uh, motivation uh, for for this character in line with many of the disappointing villains that I've seen in MCU past. I guess I was hoping for something more of the flavor. I mean, of course, we couldn't expect anything like the flavor of Thanos, but maybe uh, something more with the emotional resonance of something like Eric Killmonger, uh, just because you had such an amazing actor in the role. But alas, that's not really what we get from this character, even though I agree with you that Jake Gyllenhaal does make the most of it. Scott, what else would you like to add about yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with anything you're saying, and yet I still think he's one of the better villains we've seen in the MCU, maybe because there is a real problem in the MCU, but I think he gets the tone of the performance right, you know, from the beginning of the movie, you know, when before we find out that he is, uh, you know, evil, I think he does a nice job of playing into the fact that he is Jake Gyllenhaal, right? Like, there's sort of a, a week at the audience, like, I know you love me, right? And so, of course, you want to believe that I'm the good guy. Of course, you want to believe that I'm like, you know, I'm the new Tony Stark um, and I'm the new person who's going to mentor Peter and be a new hero. Uh, and so I think he, he makes a good, uh, he makes good use of, you know, the fact that he is such a, a well-liked actor um, in those early scenes. And then I think, you know, when he does make that shift to, we find out that he's the villain, I think he does a nice job of chewing the scenery. Right. And like, you know, I think that it's not always a great thing to have a che- scenery chewing villain, but, but because the MCU has such poor villains and has a lot of, you know, knowledge. I think it's the right thing for him to do here, especially because, you know, this is his one shot, right? We're pro- we're not going to see this character again, uh, more likely than not going forward, maybe, but I- I'd say it's doubtful, right? But this is Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, this is his first superhero movie, um, probably the only shot he's going to get in the MCU. Um, so why not just go for it? You know, why not try to leave a memorable stamp on um, the character? And I think that he does that. Yeah, like I said, I don't necessarily disagree that his motivation in terms of getting revenge for the way that Tony Stark treated him uh, is is the greatest. But I, I, you know, I do like the idea of and the almost sort of political subtext uh, underneath the surface of him you know, using the media and you know using this illusion technology to create the uh, impression that he is a hero, right? Uh, you know, I, I don't think they lean too heavily into it, probably for the best, because, it, you know, it's a light, breezy Spider-Man movie. But it's interesting, you know, the era of fake news to think about what this character, uh, you know, represents like in today's society and, and the way that he's able to, uh, you know, completely fool everyone uh, into, you know, believing that he's a hero. And in fact, he, you know, is not at all. Um, that's interesting. And that's something that we haven't really seen uh, in the MCU, you know, maybe outside of the Mandarin. Um, so I did like that angle to the character, even if his underlying motivation isn't the most satisfying. So, I mean, he's great overall. I, I can rarely ever speak a bad word about Jake Gyllenhaal. And I, and I totally agree. I think that I'm on board with your theory that he makes the most of everything that he can in this movie. It's It's always hard not to look at things in relative terms when you're talking about a franchise like the MCU and saying, that he's one of the better villains in the MCU is a pretty low bar to clear. And I think that for me, the way that I've always thought about villains and in most movies, and I think this is even true for the MCU is that even if he is one of the, I'd have to actually sit down and draw it out to see where he lands and villains in the MCU. But for me, like he just doesn't clear the bar of the character doesn't clear the bar of quality that I want and that I hope for in every MCU movie, because we've had a few movies in the last couple of years, <laughs> infinity war Endgame, uh black Panther, uh, that I mean, nah, I don't know if Thor Ragnarok counts with Hela or not, but I think that we are getting, we have been getting better villains more often than not in the past couple years of MCU movies. 
And so this felt like a step back, even if he does still fall in the, you know, better half or best third of MCU villains. And as great as Jake Gyllenhaal is, I found the motivation to be lacking. I found the expositional scenes just to be a lot. I know we already talked about that, so no reason to draw on it too long. But that toast scene just seemed really gratuitous. You know, you talk about, you know, scene, you know, uh, scenery chewing uh, villains. Um, that is the epitome. I think that scene was probably the epitome of that. He made the most of it, but. Uh, I wish he didn't have to make anything of it, to be honest. But they had, but of course, you know, Marvel had to show how clever they were and show the archival footage of multiple movies. I know Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. wasn't actually in uh, Captain America, whichever or not. Civil sorry, War. Not it was Civil War. It, it was Civil War. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it was Civil War. Uh, I know that he wasn't in that movie, so they, that was a new scene that they shot. But you know, the the archival footage from yeah, with, with Peter Bills like from um, Iron Man, the first one, yeah, from the original Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just to show how clever the MCU is, which we already know that they are, but cool. I guess they, they get to have that uh, pat yourself on the back moment. But otherwise, it just felt like the scene was was too much. Uh, but, you know, you make an interesting point about the, the era of fake news. And I think that we haven't seen that before because, you know, we haven't really necessarily seen the MCU's political uh, undertones mirror that of what we're experiencing in the present day. And I think that probably is still true. But they have been able to use the blip, which is what they're, of course, calling what we call the snap. They call the blip. Uh, they, you know, in a post blip world in the MCU, you have people, especially people like Nick Fury, who are trying to, you know, look at everything from a 10,000 foot view, you know, understand that there are things that they don't understand. And so having this, you know, completely made up story that, you know, if you walked down the street and said to someone sounds absolutely ridiculous, be believed. It's just people that are uh, people being very impressionable uh, in these post blip times where no one <laughs> really understands how anything works anymore. I mean, you have Nick Fury very on the nose say, I used to know everything, but now I don't know anything. And I have some 16 year old ghosting me, basically. And so it just shows how different the world is. And I think that that this ability to trick people and use this quote unquote fake news uh, to manipulate people, I think it speaks to the as as much as and, and as interesting as a parallel and a wink and a nod it might be to our present day times, I think also speaks to the state of the world that the MCU is now in. And I think that, you know, in future non um, space movies in the MCU, I think it's probably going to continue to play a pretty, pretty significant role. Uh, back to Jake Gyllenhaal, though. I agree. He's great. I wish that he got another shot at this. I, I hope that Mysterio returns just because of how much I love Jake Gyllenhaal. But you know, if he doesn't, I don't know if the character will be missed. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's fair to say. Uh, John Favreau is Happy Hogan. He gets a little bit more screen time, I think, this time around than he did in Homecoming, but maybe about the same. It just felt like he had some more important scenes, maybe, in this one. So, Scott, what did you think of John Favreau's performance? Often more behind the camera th- these days than in front, but he gets a rare time in front of the camera here. Yeah, you know, I think let's be let's be real here. This is John Favreau pretty much playing himself. Uh, but I don't think that's a bad thing because he's a very likable guy. He showed with he's shown with movies like Chef um, that he can lead a movie, right? Uh, not just in, behind the camera, but in front of the camera. The most likable uh, and affable movies that come out in the last several years, and his performance is is one of the many reasons why. Uh, and I think he he does uh, do a nice job here as Happy Hogan. You know, he. he hits the right emotional notes in that one scene with uh, Peter on the plane. Um, you know, of course, Happy and, and Tony uh, were very close. So it feels right that he's the one who gets the scene with Peter um, and sort of, you know, wakes Peter up to the fact that, you know, you got to step up. Tony wanted you to step up. And so now it's time to do um, what, what Tony wanted. Uh, but, he, you know, he gets some good laughs as well. I, I love when he <laughs> throws the, sh- uh, the shield that. at uh, whoever it was that was 
that was chasing them. Yeah. And then, and then remarks that Captain America makes it look so easy. Um, that was great. Uh, and then of course, you know, it, the, the new uh, subplot of him and Aunt May is, I think, going to make for some uh, some good hijinks. Board. Are you sure it's not over? Are you sure it wasn't just a fling? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that seems to be what she thought, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, one of the things that I, just to add to what you were saying, one of the things I love about this Happy Hogan character in this particular movie is that, you know, he's had, Peter, right, that has had figures in his life, of course, that always feel one-dimensional in their, like, goals for him i mean you have even in this movie right you have nick fury who wants speeder to or sorry speeder wow peter to be spider-man uh, and i think that of course you have like all of like mj uh, and his classmates who probably like want him to be peter parker and then you have happy somewhere in the middle where he's he's someone who in that moment on the jet he tells peter he needs to step up and be responsible and become the person uh, and become spider-man right but then at the end of the movie you have him saying telling nick fury that he'll call you and not the other way around. So he's also still looking out for Peter's, uh, you know, better interests on the other side of things as well. And so that's what I, I really like that Happy Hogan it gets to have Peter's back in that way that no one else really uh, seem, seems to in this franchise. And so I think that there's just a perfect spot for John Favreau in, in Peter Parker's life. And I think he plays it, you know, like I feel like I've said with every character, he plays it really well. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury, or is it Ben Mendelsohn's Talos playing Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury? Who knows? Uh, but either way, I think that it is at least uh, Samuel L. Jackson for a good chunk of this movie and probably Ben Mendelsohn only in the credit scene. Scott, what did you think of Sam Jackson in this one? We've seen him in so many movies. It's tough to say that he had a starring role in this one, but he's probably around more than he is in other movies, except for, of course, Captain Marvel. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, to go back to what you said um about the post credit scene early on, I do think he does a nice job here of letting us know with just certain ways that he delivers lines or his reactions to certain things that something is just not quite right. He doesn't, he doesn't actually, he doesn't go over the top of it, right? To the point where we're like, okay, clearly something is wrong here. Like it's just subtle enough uh, to where we think, oh, that's kind of weird, but we don't, um, you know, read too much into it, um, which makes the end, you know, in credit scene still a nice reveal. Um, and so I think that's really where the strong part of this performance comes. And because we are so familiar with the character, you know, changing it up and tweaking it in those subtle ways uh, that he know will make the audience sort of raise their eyebrow a little bit, uh, I think is a really nuanced thing to do, but uh, not something that I'm surprised to see an actor of his quality be able to pull off. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Uh, it's not even something that I necessarily thought about in that way, but you're right on the second viewing I, I mean, in the first movie, I sensed that something felt off. It sounds like you felt the same way that the postcard scene then explained, but it, it was uh, even more enriching to go back and watch it a second time and really focus in on the key moments where you're like, okay, this is where it felt like something was off. This is where it felt like something was off. And I think one of those moments is when uh, towards the, I think it's towards the end of the movie. It's definitely towards the end of the movie where uh, Colby, Kobe Smulders' character goes, "Oh, he had no doubts whatsoever. He had full trust in Clint mm. Beck." And you know, the Nick Fury that we know would never have zero doubts about anything, like literally anything. So I think that that is probably the most obvious moment. And uh, but even on the first viewing, it's not super obvious. You think it's just being, "Oh, it's a laugh," like Nick Fury being wrong, played for a joke. Uh, but when you go back and rewatch it after you, with the knowledge of the post credit scene you know that, in fact, <laughs> it was serious, but that's because it's not really Nick Fury. Uh, and so I, I like that. I'm on board with you. And uh, I don't know if I have too much to add other than uh, Sam Jackson can be in as many MCU movies as he'd like. I 
think it's going to be interesting the next time he shows up in an MCU film, what he's going to be up to. Maybe it'll be something in the Black Widow movie next year. If that is one of the ones that comes out next year, uh, we'll see. He's traveling through space for a reason. I don't think he's just on vacation. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that point. Um, and after him sort of being sidelined for Endgame and then, well, definitely being sidelined for Endgame and then um, actually being himself uh, <laughs> in this movie, I think it's time for him to you know make a big step back into uh, what's going on with the MCU in the future. Yeah. All right, Scott, any other people that of the adults like to mention? I mean, I've talked about Kobe Smolders a little bit who reprises her role as Maria Hill. There's also Martin Starr who plays Mr. Harrington, JB Smoove as Julius Dell. Both of those two are two of their teachers on the, or I should say just chaperones. They, I don't understand how you could learn anything from either of them. And yeah. then of course, Marissa Tomei as, as Aunt May, who you've already mentioned a little bit as well. Yeah. I think that Martin Starr and JB Smoove are funny. Um, you know, they, 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 you know, they definitely have some misses in terms of their jokes, uh, but they have some hits as well. Uh, and, you know, I think they're solid comic relief characters to throw all teenagers. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think Mermaid is really great as this Aunt May because we are so used to seeing a particular version of Aunt May. You know, the, the sweet old lady, the Rosemary Harris from the original um, Sam Raimi trilogy. Uh, I think I like the way that they've switched this character up and she's kind of like, I mean, she's a mom now more than anything. Uh, but she's also sort of this like weird hippie who, you know, dresses really fashionably and feels it, you know, it, it matches Marissa Tomei very well, I think. And so even though she doesn't have a lot of screen time in this movie, I still like the spin that they put on this character. You know, it's one of those one of the ways that I think that they've really done a good job with these Spider-Man movies of rewriting, uh, you know, what we were so familiar with uh, about the Spider-Man franchise uh, franchises uh, up until uh, Homecoming came along. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. I think for me, I'd like to talk just very briefly on these two teachers. You talk about them being comic relief characters, and they're exactly that. And I think that it's these two characters where I, that I can pinpoint as being the, the two people yeah. where I thought that like the writing, they just like they're just trying to make too many jokes. It feels like every single like you already have a lot of the kids as you know, even of course like Ned and Betty as like comic relief. You have Flash as comic relief. You have like Brad Davis. Um, like in some ways also being comic relief, like everyone is funny in this movie. You've talked about one of the reasons why you don't like guardians of the galaxy, or I should say you like it less than some of the other MCU movies is because everyone is so funny. And I just think that the writers made a mistake in trying to throw so many jokes into this movie. And I think that one of the ones that would have, or two, like the, the, one of the spots that I can point to that said, you know, maybe if you just took a bunch of these jokes out, it would feel just a little bit more balanced. And I think it's with these teachers there are certain moments where I'm, of course, I wouldn't want them to take out those jokes because some of them are genuinely very funny. But there are moments like with Peter on the plane, um, with like the recurring witch joke with J.B. Smoove, like as funny as it was the first couple of times, like it felt like it got repetitive over time. And so some of these kind of more minor characters, maybe if they were just dialed back a little bit as funny as they as genuinely funny as they are, ultimately too much of a good thing is bad sometimes. And I think that maybe is what they ran into with these with these couple characters. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that. I don't think you would lose a lot from the movie if you were just to come out of the uh, movie altogether. But, you know, there's a few there's a few good gags in there for sure. For sure. And, and especially when the gags like integrate with some of the other like goings on of the movie, when you have, uh, Ju- you know, the, the Julius, uh, J.B. Smooth's character telling Brad Davis that he has to cut out taking photos yeah. of people in the bathroom, <laughs> stall, stall or urinal. Uh, I mean, that's a really funny joke. Uh, and you know, if it was, you know, only one, if it was one of only a couple jokes that he made through the movie, that'd have been great. But instead it's like one of like 10 jokes that he made in the movie. And that just felt unnecessary to me. But again, uh, it's all about balance. And, and maybe I, I just pinpointed these characters as maybe being the points where you could have balanced the movie out a little bit more. 
Yeah. All right, Scott, moving on to the plot. It, of course, it's inevitable that we've talked a lot about the plot already, but there are some key points that we've probably missed. I really thought of this movie in two parts. I don't think we have to talk about the two parts necessarily separately because they are interwoven to an extent. But of course, there's this kind of rom-com team drama um, European field trip aspect of the movie. And then, of course, you know, the action superhero stroke deception movie uh, almost when, of course, with the illusion tech with Mysterio and everything that's going on there. Scott, I think one part of this movie is is really well done, uh, is the, the great part of this movie. And then that is, of course, you know, the, the teen drama rom-com element of it to an extent. And then there are parts of, you know, the action superhero movie that I think are also good. I think some of the best action sequences in the MCU maybe even are in this movie. But I think that this movie also, the fact that you have these two parts presents just a little bit of an identity crisis of what this movie is trying to be. And I think that, you know, what I alluded to earlier with Homecoming feeling like a tighter movie and knowing what it wanted to be very explicitly, I think that maybe in these two separate parts is where the the movie shuts itself a little bit thin. I wonder if you disagree with me, however, and love to get your thoughts. I don't know that I I don't know that I totally disagree. I mean, I definitely hear what you're saying, and I think maybe it isn't completely seamless the way that the two parts work together. But I will say that my favorite scene of the movie, just to spoil, you know, before we get to the uh, wrap up here, uh, is the scene where I think the two parts intersect in a really uh, clever and creative way, and that's when, of course, you know, you just talked about how uh, the scene with JB Smooth talking about. Uh, how Brad shouldn't take pictures of people in the bathroom. And I think, uh, you know, that, of course, is a reference to um, when Peter gets caught with uh, this S.H.I.E.L.D. operative, I guess, who's giving him a new uh, suit and, and is, wants him to disrobe. And uh, and Brad comes in and takes a photo. But it was a great sequence where Peter, using Edith, uh, you know, operating system, basically, that uh, Tony Stark has given him, accidentally orders a drone strike on Brad uh, and has to, like, you know, he helped the tour bus and help, uh, you know, all of his friends avoid uh, destruction at the hands of the drone. I think that's a great way of bringing, you know, the action stuff uh, into conflict with uh, the high school drama. And that's that's really what I want from a Spider-Man movie is, I, you know, obviously you have the two parts. But I think the hallmark of a good Spider-Man movie is how, how well it, it, it uh, you know, makes those two parts intersect. And I think that's a great example of uh, how it did bring... Um, both parts together in a, in a you know satisfying way in a, in a clever and creative way. I like uh, Peter's uh, alternate identity as Spider-Man affect his normal life because I think that is what so much of this movie is about is finding balance and you know this time when he's not able to balance it as well. But uh, it's a great scene. Yeah, I, that's probably all I really have to say honestly about the plot that we haven't covered. Yeah, I, I agree that that is. I mean, that is one of the better scenes, and that's the kind. And I totally agree with that's the kind of the action sequences and the superhero element that I want intersecting with that. You know that real life teen drama that you know the field trip in this case the rom-com within you know between him and, and mj and i think that that's actually what i mean of course the rom-com element's not there in homecoming uh to an extent at least right but i think that's what homecoming does better and i think that you know we something that we referenced earlier is is key to that and that's because you know in those action sequences usually there's some element of you know whether it's Ned or whether it's Liz kind of being there in the background of the scene and it contributing to that, right? Most of the time it's Ned in that movie. Yeah, he's the man in the chair in Spider-Man Homecoming. But in Far From Home, you don't have the guy in the chair. Like maybe sometimes you have Happy, but most of the time it's just Peter having to deal with that situation himself. And part of that is forcing Peter into the moment to deal with the fact that, you know, he has to do things by himself. He has to take responsibility. And so I think that it's, it's by design, but I think it ultimately pushes 
the action sequences and that element of the movie in a direction away from having it necessarily like fully seamlessly integrated into that other, you know, the other part of the movie. And it'll be interesting now with MJ in the fold of things. And of course the rest of the world in the fold of things, whether they revert back to that direction in the third movie. But I think that's where that, that disparate feeling comes from in far from home. But at the same time, I think maybe you don't have, you know, these, these characters as involved uh, as Ned was in Spider-Man Homecoming with what's going on, but they're not on the sidelines, right? They don't disappear in these sequences. Like Ned and Betty are on the Ferris wheel, you know, during the, the one sequence um, with uh, the fire elemental. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, most of the the times when the elementals or uh, whoever attacks in this movie, you know, it's when Peter's friends are present and, and, you know, MJ in particular is targeted in this movie. So I think they do, uh, the, the stakes of the movie, they do relate it back to Drama and his group of friends. You know, again, maybe they're not as involved as Ned was in the first movie, but mm. you know, I think they, they do keep them blended together mm. in maybe not a seamless way, but in an effective way. Yeah. I think, I think that is a fair point. I, I don't view it as to your, you know, to your point. I mean, you just said this, right. But like as, as seamless as they did at homecoming, but that, that is a fair point. Like there is always stakes involved with each one with the water elemental. It's maybe lower stakes just cause he's like shepherding them away from the water elemental in the canal. And he's just trying to figure out, you know, what the heck is going on there. Then with the fire elemental, you of course have Ned and Betty yeah. and MJ though. He doesn't realize it kind of just kind of follow him or wander into the situation uh, and then, of course, in the final one, they're being directly targeted by Beck. So that that is a fair point. It just felt like, I guess in some ways, that felt more forced, right? Like, it didn't make sense that Ned and Betty just water, wandered off and it, into into harm's way, right? And, you know... It, well, they they didn't want to be at the opera in the first place. I mean, they wanted to go to car- the carnival all along. And, of course, that just had to be about fair. when they attacked. So I don't think it, I think it makes no. sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a fair one. Yeah, yeah, I will. I'll see to that for okay. sure. All right, uh, we know we've, <laughs> I definitely uh, already talked about this <laughs> in probably more detail than I should have, but the post credit scenes, I mean, it was impossible not to talk about them because they were so, so, so big, both of them, honestly, for, and so critical to the movie. But Scott, uh, I'll let you share maybe some of your thoughts now on the post credit scene because I've definitely said my part already. Yeah, I don't know that I have too much to say about the post credit scene, you know, other than what I've said about Samuel Jackson's performance and stuff. I don't know that it's going to have like a huge ripple effect going forward other than, you know, we talked about that maybe Sam Jackson is planning something while he's on his vacation. After the mid-credit scene, I think, yeah, it is It is somewhat unprecedented to see Peter's identity unmasked in this way. Um, something that we really don't see until the very end of the Sam Raimi trilogy um, in, in mm-hmm. you know, that original trilogy. Um, and I think that, what, for, you know, for me, what, what's going to be interesting is, is this going to play out in other, like, in like the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, or in 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 some other MCU Phase Four movies that we're going to get that aren't centered on Spider Man, or is this going to be like something that we really only come back to when Spider Man Three comes out? Um, because it seems like it's going to have a huge ripple effect for not just for for Peter, but for the Avengers as a whole. Um, and so I guess that's what I'm interested to see with with this particular um, scene. And then of course J Jonah Jameson, uh, J.K. Simmons being back is awesome. Like he's easily one of the best parts of that Sam Raimi trilogy, easily the best portrayal of this character that we've ever seen. Uh, and so I love the teaser of bringing him back. And I hope that he has uh, more than just a throwaway part in the next Spider-Man movie, because I'd be disappointed if they did this and then he didn't have that big of a role, but I don't think they would do that. So looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll see. I, I think it's, I, I just have absolutely 
so many ideas and app and also no ideas whatsoever about what they're going to be doing with this third Spider-Man movie. And I don't know if JK Simmons will have a major role. Then again, I don't know if it'll be a throwaway role either. It just feels like they're not going to make some like JK Simmons is J. Jonah Jameson, like the villain of a movie. Right. But it could be interesting on how he plays into the world uh, and kind of the lore of the MCU, even um, as he now officially exists in this universe. I think it's awesome, but um, I, I fear that you also might be disappointed ultimately by what what this character ends up being. Yeah, maybe so. And it does seem like they're going slightly different with him. Like he's almost like a conspiracy theorist, like almost Alex Jones type uh, host, at least from the brief snippet we get here. So that's interesting, and and I'd be interested to see how that plays out. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I mean, I played last year's Spider-Man PS4 where they also have a J. Jonah Jameson, mm-hmm. and he's like very much like the conspiracy theorist uh, Alex Jones type in that game as well. So it's definitely the direction that Marvel, uh, you know, proper general, not just Marvel Studios, but all of Marvel is going, it feels like, with that character. Uh, so I was less surprised to see that change. But now that you pointed out, that is a it is a big change from what we got in the Sam Raimi trilogy. He even kind of sounds like Alex Jones a little bit too, which is kind of funny. I can't honestly say I know what Alex Jones particularly sounds like because I haven't listened to him. You're lucky. All right, Scott, final question before we do interrupt wrap-up phase. You know, phase three is done. I did text you or or, uh, put in our Discord that, you know, with the runtime of Spider-Man Far From Home, they did officially hit 3,000 minutes uh, across their first 23 movies. Uh, I love you three. And they say that the three, I love you 3,000 thing was like throwaway thing that, Tony Stark like ad libbed into the movie, which for me with this just feels like that's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know. Re- regardless, I'm blown away by the level of detail that the MCU is able to maintain. Uh, but regardless, uh, I mean, we already had an MCU retrospective, which also uh, talked about where we think phase four is going to go. But Scott, with the unveiling of that mid credit scene in particular, where do we go from here? What is going to be next? I mean, we're going to find out very, very soon, probably some, some semblance of the direction that the MCU is going in phase four. Uh, but Scott, do you have any sense at the end of this movie where we're going? Not at all, to be honest with you. Like I said, I think the main thing I'm interested in this movie is see how they're getting revealed, uh, plays out in other, um, Marvel franchises. If it plays out, you know, in those franchises at all, I think, you know, with the movies that we come have coming up, it's hard to know what we're going to get. I mean, obviously we think with guardians, uh, three that we're going to have Thor involved, that we're going to, uh, be searching for, uh, Gamora probably for, um, or, you know, maybe is going to be what's driving the plot in the movie. But other than that, who knows? I mean, we have Black Widow, which is like a, a prequel uh, movie. Like, you know, that's going to be an origin story probably for Black Widow. I mean, like, do we know that? Is that, I feel like that's just speculation. But, okay. They haven't actually said that it's going to be a prequel. But she's dead, right? So it's it's got to it's gotta go back in time somewhat. Maybe, we'll um, see. We'll see. I really hope that she's dead. Um, just because I think Marvel would really be playing themselves if if she wasn't, but... But I mean, then, you know, we have something like the Eternals, which we don't really know anything about. Uh, and the other one that we don't know anything about either that I can't remember the name of. Um, Shang-Chi, is that it? Yeah, we don't really know um, much about that one either. So I guess it's just kind of a big question mark at this point. Maybe with, uh, you know, what what we're going to see at Comic-Con here in a couple of weeks, um, we're going to get some more insight. But yeah, um, obviously, I, I'm more on board than I ever have been with the MCU. Though, so I, I'm ready for the ride. My heart is warm just hearing you say that. I, you know, I think that the, everything that we know about Phase Four so far is that it feels like 
everything is shifting more to that cosmic focus. You know, of course we had that with the Avengers movies, the, you know, the infinity war in game uh, double feature. We understand that it, that is an inherently more cosmic, both in, you know, both in the space travel that we get in infinity war, but also I guess maybe in the time travel and the multiverse, maybe question mark uh, from Avengers in game as well. And that feels like the direction they're going with having something like the Eternals. Of course we have guardians of the galaxy volume three coming up. Uh, who, who knows where, uh, that you know that movie is going to be set, and who knows where some of these other movies might be set as well. And so it feels like there is a shift toward the cosmic realm. But having said that, then you have something like the mid credit scene here, which raises the stakes back on Earth. You know, we have a Doctor Strange two coming. We have a Black Panther two coming. Like, yes, this these mid credit scene and these post credit scenes, it feels like are very geared. Or I should say at least the mid credit scene is very geared toward the Spider Man uh, kind of sub franchise within the MCU, but will those movies have, you know, added implications for those other sequels that we're going, that we know we're going to be getting moving forward as well. I think big questions mark there. I'd say if anything, Spider-Man far from home made me second guess more what phase four is going to look like. And honestly, that's awesome. Agreed. Okay, Scott, entering wrap up phase, you've already alluded to slash explicitly stated what your favorite scene was, but let's just go ahead and have you uh, reconfirm that that was your favorite scene from Spider-Man 4. Yeah, it's the scene where Peter accidentally orders a drone from the bucket. Um, again, I, I love it because of the way that it draws the high school drama and also the action and, uh, you know, Peter's alternate identity as Spider-Man. It, it draws them together in, uh, in an effective and satisfying way. It, you know, it's something that we don't see in a lot of, other MCU sub franchises because there is the, is the uh, of all the you know superheroes within the MCU he's the one who is the most normal right he's a normal kid he's a normal um, guy and so that's what plays into um, what makes his character different so I like seeing the way that his superpowers affect his normal life uh, in this particular scene because that's not something we get a lot yeah and I think that that point for me is so it, it's what makes the mid credit scene so powerful right like yeah one of the I was reading one of the pieces that was kind of a it, I hate to call it a think piece because it wasn't really that but like this idea that why why is it such a big deal that Peter Parker's identity was released when every other Avengers identity is known and it's because Peter is the most human of us it speaks about who Peter is like and it's probably who Tony wanted yeah. Peter to be right he wanted him to be able to still live out a somewhat normal life because Peter's not like everyone else uh, who was part of the Avengers. He's not like born and bred into that role. I mean, you could argue that Tony wasn't either, but he of course took on that role uh, over the years. And I will say just as a kind of final thought before I say what my favorite scene was that it's very fitting that the first movie in the MCU ended with a voluntary reveal of a superhero's identity. And that phase three is ending with the involuntary reveal of uh, an Avengers identity. And I think it'll, maybe we'll, uh, set the tone for phase four. I don't know. But we'll see. I think there's some there's some interesting parallelisms there, probably. Very true. Okay. My favorite scene, I think, uh, has to be another callback to the original Iron Man movie. And that is on the plane when... Oh, yes. I, I'm glad you mentioned this because I, I forgot Yeah. When Happy says that Peter will take should take care of the suit and he gets to geek out with the, with the tech and create his own suit while Happy takes care of the music. And then you get uh, Back in Black, which was... That, I mean, that more than anything, and there was plenty of moments during this movie where this happened, but that more than anything just brought a grin onto my face. Yeah, it was, it was a great moment. I, I also, my face lit up. Of course, they had to get their joke in with him, with Peter saying, oh, I love Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Which definitely drew a bunch of laughs in my theater, but I'm like, oh, you freaking oh, yeah. teenager. <laughs> Stupid teens. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you going to give Spider-Man Far From Home? 8.8, Scott. Gen- genuinely one of my favorite movies in the MCU. Better than Homecoming for me. Um, and 
a wonderful follow-up to the best movie in the industry. Yeah, yeah. I'm not too far off that as well, but a little bit lower, 8.2. All right, well, that should just about do it for our discussion of Spider-Man Far From Home. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be bringing you the latest news from uh, our holiday 4th of July week, so a few fewer uh, items than usual, thank goodness, uh, because we did go a little bit long with this review, and then also a couple trailers. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, in the world of news, we reported last week that the Little Mermaid had cast uh, Melissa McCarthy in the role of Ursula. And this week, we got a bunch more casting news for that movie. Uh, We learned that Halle Bailey will be playing Ariel. So a a little bit more of a singer rather rather than an actor, which I think is probably the right direction to go. And we also learned that Aquafina will play Scuttle. And Jacob Tremblay will play Flounder. Scott, what do you think of this casting news? You know, we talked last week about how Melissa McCarthy was maybe a safe casting pick for Ursula and that but that there were other opportunities to shake things up a little bit. Do you think that they are going that directions with this with these three castings? Well, they definitely are um, with Halle Bailey um, as uh, as Ariel, obviously, uh, you know. A lot of people are pointing this out, mostly on that side of things. But, um, the fact that she is African American, which um, you know, no one should have a problem with, but of course, it's in, in the internet age, people are always going to have a problem with it. Um, so I think, in that sense, they are shaking things up. Uh, but I, you know, it's great to see them shaking things up because of what you said, right? Because Melissa McCarthy did feel a little bit safe, and you know, we also have the casting of an Asian American actress as well in Aquafina as as um, one of the supporting characters. I forget what the name was that you said, but. Um, Scuttle. And then plus the Pelican. Yeah. Obviously love Aquafina. Want her to be in everything pretty much nowadays. Um, and seems like she is and going to be in about everything from the casting news <laughs> that we've been reporting recently. So uh, definitely on board with that. Jacob Tremblay, not someone that I've been a huge fan of in the past, just because I think room is a little bit overrated and uh, you know, never saw like wonder and good boys looks horrible, but obviously a, a very talented young actor um, and in a supporting role here, uh, I'm sure he'll, he'll be given room to shine. So across the board, I think this is great. Like you said, I, th- I think they're right to um, pick a singer as Ariel. Uh, I don't, I'm not as familiar with um, her, Halle Bailey's music, but from what I hear, she's very talented and um, I would much rather have that than, you know, Russell Crowe as Javert. You know, I mean, I mean, honestly, I think that they could have really shaken it up and put Russell Crowe's Ariel, but I think yeah. they might have been upset about that as well. I would have really been shaking it up. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the, I think that I'm on board with you. I think this is a, a great casting. Uh, I I think that choosing choosing a singer over a established actress is probably going to ultimately be be the right way to go because I think there is going to be a lot of uh, CG applied, uh, which I and so motion capture is probably a little bit more important in this film. Yeah. Uh, then at least for certain parts of it right before she becomes you know human uh but ultimately the songs are what's going to i think will be the things that stick out the most in the movie and so having those parts right even if you sacrifice a little bit of acting quality and who knows i mean we don't know maybe she's going to crush it too in the acting department i think that that's uh, okay in my book yeah definitely all right, Scott, switching gears a little bit from uh, Disney over to Warner Brothers in D.C. Uh, we heard this week and we reported, I think, last year, I think we did talk about it on the podcast, about how there's this kind of like war over at Warner Brothers between Ezra Miller and John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, who are the at least as of as of, you know, 
two weeks ago, the the writers for the Flash movie that Warner Brothers had most recently tapped. But this week we found out that Andy, there's been a big shakeup and that Andy Muschietti, the director of It, uh, is in talks and will likely be the one to take over as the director for the, you know, kind of the stalled Flash movie over at DC. Uh, and then John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein are out and will be replaced by Christina Hodson, who's uh, the writer for Birds of Prey, which is coming out February of next year of 2020. Yeah. And I think probably the biggest news of all that Ezra Miller will still be Barry Allen. Cause I think there was a lot of speculation that, you know, he was going to, you know, step aside after they gave him a shot to kind of rewrite the script or uh, rewrite some sort of like storyboard uh, for the story of that movie. But apparently he won that war between uh Daly and Goldstein because he's there and they're not Scott. What do you think about this kind of shakeup? Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think the most surprising thing is that Ezra Miller is still around because, you know, we had talked about the fact that it seemed like there was no chance that he had uh, that he was going to be coming back as Barry Allen um, and, you know, was not was far from people's favorite part about uh, Justice League. Um, and so I, it is a surprise not only that he's back, but it seems like he's running the show now. Right. Like if correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Andy Muschietti was sort of like hand tapped by uh, Ezra Miller to be the person to direct this movie. Um, so it's it's very interesting to yep. hear the the role that he apparently has in the production now, you know. I wasn't the big fan of Flash um, in in Justice League, as I haven't been the biggest fan of most things in the DCEU. So it's hard for me to get excited about any of their projects going forward. But, you know, we'll see. I keep an open mind. I mean, you say that, uh, but the Joker is coming out in October, and I know that you're excited about that. That's true. But, I mean, is that really going to be firmly in the DCEU? I don't know that we know that. Uh, we? No, it's definitely not. But, I mean, okay, maybe I shouldn't say definitely not. But it's not. But it's the same people. Like, it's still... All yeah. of the big wigs at DC. So it's, it's the same people producing it ultimately. You're not wrong. Yeah. No, for me, I'm, I totally agree. I thought that Ezra Miller had like both feet out the door, honestly, at the end of last year when we last talked about the story and to see him pull through. And that's because the, they, it seemed like DC wanted to go a different direction than dark and uh, than the dark direction that you see. And, you know, to some extent, Man of Steel, definitely in Batman versus Superman, uh, still semblances of that in Justice League. And it seemed like Ezra Miller wanted to go that direction for the Flash movie. And whereas Daly and Goldstein, you know, known more for their comedic writing probably than their dramatic writing, uh, were, wanted to take that in a different direction. Wanted to take it something more of the flavor of like an Aquaman or a Shazam. And somehow it seems like Ezra Miller's version of the story uh, is the one that won out, which feels like a couple steps back maybe. Uh, I mean, but that, I mean, that being said, like he, he won this battle and, that means that what he did come up with and the ideas that he generated were compelling enough for the people over there. The problem is that we don't probably trust them completely yet with all the ideas that they ultimately greenlight over there yet. I mean, maybe they're headed in the right direction. I think probably more than you do that they're headed in the right direction, but I find this to be really interesting. I am very shocked that this is the development that Ezra Miller is still there that he, you know, hand, I mean, I like Andy Muschietti. I think he's probably going to do a good job, but I'm really surprised that Ezra Miller was able to kind of handpick the director that he wanted for this movie. Uh, we'll see what the uh, Christina Hodson is capable of when when Birds of Prey does Birds of Prey does come out early next year. But for me, this is I mean this is a big shock, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, it's a question mark. I think at this point. Yeah. Okay. Jumping from you know an icon, you know uh, superheroes to an iconic fantasy franchise, uh, Lord of the Rings. You know we've reported a couple times on here about Amazon's Lord of the Rings series that's going to be coming out 2020, uh, 2021, sometime in that range. And they we got a little bit of news there that J.A. Bayona 
the director of many different things, probably most recently, but least notably the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom movie from last year. Uh, but he's set to direct two episodes in this series and also serve as an executive producer for the entire project. And the events seem like they will be set before the Fellowship of the Ring, exploring entirely new stories and content from the Silmarillion or some other uh, kind of extant work from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien over there in, in that Middle Earth universe. Scott, I know you're not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan. Does this do, and, and probably not the biggest J.A. Bayona fan after last year, but does this do anything at all for you? Yeah, understatement to say that I, I'm I'm not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan. Um, I you know, don't know anything about it, really. Don't really care anything about it, to be quite frank. Uh, and so I think intelligent that I could possibly add to this discussion. Uh, so I'll let you give your thoughts because you're definitely much more steeped in this realm. I don't know how steeped I am these days, but I, I did uh, make a, make it a ritual to watch Lord of the Rings movies pretty frequently back in the day. And by that back in the day, I mean like six or seven years ago. But I, I mean, for J.A. Bayona, like, I don't know if you've seen any of these other movies like A Monster Calls or The Impossible or The Orphanage, but they're well guarded. Yeah, was, that's what I was going to say. Like, yes, we did not like Fallen Kingdom. I mean, it still made a crap ton of money, but it seems like people are excited about J.A. Bayona directing this because it's not what people were expecting. Probably it's like. I don't know what people were expecting, to be honest, but all the reactions that I saw from like people that I follow on Twitter that have opinions on these things, they were really excited to see Bayona directing this. And so this feels like it's the right step for Amazon to take. I mean, they're betting hard on this Lord of the Rings series. I mean, maybe rightfully so, right? But like, it's a franchise that the most recent outings on were like pretty derided by people. Uh, that being, of course, like the Hobbit trilogy, especially the Battle of the Five Armies, I think the kind of lowest rated of those three movies. And so... You know, with all this kind of sequel fatigue that we're seeing at the box office with Men in Black, X-Men Dark Phoenix, you know, name your summer movie that's kind of been a dud at the box office. Granted, this isn't going to the box office. This is going to a streaming service. But I wonder if this, you know, colossal investment that Amazon making, it's going to be the most expensive per episode series in history, more expensive than Game of Thrones. Like there, Amazon is betting so heavily on this. You know, unless this is an absolute home run, I fear that this could be you know, a, a colossal failure for Amazon. And so I think this is a step in the right direction for that project to be a success, but I still just have a lot of concern. Interesting. What's interesting about it? Uh, that you feel that it's a, you know, uh, it has the chance to be a huge, uh, huge failure. I just, I mean, I guess maybe, maybe it's a knee jerk reaction to what we're yeah. seeing at the box office this year. And it is, and this isn't going to the box office. I think it's important to remember that, you know, maybe something like a men in black international have gone, if it went direct to streaming, would have been super successful. Who knows? Right. But like, it feels like with all the sequel fatigue that we're seeing at the box office, you know, with things that have been totally gone for like try attempted to be cash grabs that weren't that good movies and, and being failures, right. To see Amazon go after a series that's, you know, as revered and well-regarded as Lord of the Rings as has been historically, but which has suffered more recently in the most recent outings. If they don't crush it, I wonder if, they'll ultimately view it as success. But the, I mean, the, the economics of it are so different because it's because it's on a streaming service and not going to the, not going to the theater. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of streaming services, we'll skip over to Netflix here. You know, originally kind of at the beginning of last week, there was news that Sandman, uh, Neil Gaiman's or Gaiman's graphic novel with it, I think on the DC imprint uh, was going to be greenlit for a mini series uh, at Warner Brothers, but at the end, by the end of the week, what we found is that this is actually going to be a series on Netflix, which I found extremely surprising. Scott, I doubt that you probably know much about the Sandman comics. I don't either myself. I do like Neil Gaiman as a writer, however, uh, and does this series at all get you excited? I mean, this is something else that I can't speak too intelligently about. Um, I'm not 
of course, I'm familiar with Neil Gaiman, but I don't. Yeah, I've never watched any of the shows, never read any of his books. But he has become a very popular name in pop culture. I mean, there have been several shows in recent years based off of his work, American Gods, we just had Good Omens. And Sandman, you know, from, from what I understand, is considered to be one of his greatest works. Um, so, you know, it, it definitely has the potential to uh, be a big, t- you know, event uh, production for Netflix. I don't think it's something that I'm going to watch. But again, I think it could be big for Netflix. Yeah, I think it's really viewed as one of these like really mature comic book uh, yeah. graphic novel series, not unlike, the you know, The Watchmen, which is also a DC imprint. Uh, and so I think that it's one of those things where if done correctly, which I trust Netflix to do with a TV show at this point then I think it could be an absolute smash hit, right? The question is, of course, you know, will they do it justice? Uh, I think that I have trust that they will, but we'll see over time. It's something that I'm pretty excited about, even though I know very little about it. Uh, mainly, And I'm mainly excited just because Neil Gaiman's name is, is attached to it. I love American Gods. I, you know, read, I know that book came out you know, a decade and a half ago, if not more than that, maybe even longer, 20, 25 years ago. But I recently read it uh, for the first time a couple years ago, really loved the book. I haven't watched the, I think it's Showtime or Stars. I don't know where the show is at. Haven't watched that. But just seeing his name attached and knowing that Sandman, you know, to your point exactly, is such a popular graphic novel, uh, to see that adapted uh, in a way that allows, that is easier to do something justice with that volume and scope in the form of a miniseries. And, you know, if done well, it could be really great. As all things, if they're done well, they could be really great. So that doesn't actually say that much. <laughs> Uh, all right, Scott, speaking of things that could be great if done well, we'll skip over to some trailers next. And, you know, something that I think, have either of us seen either of the Jumanji movies? I know I haven't seen either one. I have some catching up to do. But we did get the first trailer for Jumanji 3, which we know the title is going to be Jumanji The Next Level. A little bit of a twist here. Uh, so some spoilers ahead for Jumanji 2, I guess, if that's something people care about, which I know that we don't. So sorry about that. But what we learn in this trailer is that uh, there's a little bit of a mix-up. It's no longer the same characters in the avatars. Uh, but basically, the characters are getting shaken up a little bit. We still get, of course, The Rock, Karen Gillan, and Jack Black as sort of the main avatars in the Jumanji game. But the people who are inhabiting them are different this time around. It's no longer the kids. It's Danny Glover and Danny DeVito, uh, which is a real weird twist. Scott, what did you think of this trailer? Uh, is there anything that got you excited or interested in potentially revisiting uh, the Jumanji movies before this one comes out in December? No, not at all. If we're being quite honest, uh, I know it's blasphemy that I haven't seen the first movie because it is, you know, a classic for a lot of people. But you know, this is not my kind of movie. I'm not about the big mainstream comedies. I don't think Kevin Hart is that funny. And this shtick of having, you know, Danny Glover, Danny DeVito inhabiting their bodies and doing their voices and all this seem to get really, really tired, um, you know, probably very far to the movie. So um, hopefully there'll be another big release out that week so we can skip this one on the podcast. Uh, yeah, a lot of people did like Welcome to the Jungle a lot, so I'm sure it's going to do fine at the box office because the first one was huge at the box office, if I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, this, you mean the second one? Yeah, yeah, Welcome to the Jungle, like crushed. Yeah, I think it surpassed every Spider-Man movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it definitely made over a billion dollars. I don't know. Uh, it made a lot of money. But a couple weeks before Jumanji 3 is another movie and the other trailer we're going to be talking about this week, and that is Knives Out, Scott. One of our most anticipated movies of the year, it's very fair to say. Uh, what did you get from the first trailer? We got a full, a, pretty much a full look at all the cast members here. I'd say some, for me, stood out more than others. I'm thinking particularly maybe of Chris Evans in a non-Captain America role, and of course Daniel Craig in his American but not really American accent. 
Hard to tell. Scott, what did you think of this trailer? This trailer was great, Scott. This is exactly what I want. You know, for what I saw from this trailer is exactly what I want this movie to be, which is sort of, you know, your classic drawing room mystery, right? Your Agatha Christie style. Every All the characters are together like in one house. Um, but at the same time, it has a sort of kooky, like weird Ryan Johnson spin on it for sure that you can already pick up um, from the trailers. You have, it looks like three different detectives. You got Lakeith Stanfield, you got... Um, Daniel Craig doing a very interesting uh, Southern accent. And then you have someone else who I, I didn't recognize um, playing the other detective. But then, yeah, your, your cast members are, are great as well. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis, Chris Evans, um, among, you know, many others. Um, I think this, you know, looks exactly like my kind of movie. And I trust Ryan Johnson so much now after Looper and Last Jedi. I think he's such an interesting director. Um, so I think uh, it's going to be, you know, great to see how he puts his spin on the murder mystery genre in the way that he's already put his spin on both Star Wars and, uh, you know, sci-fi with Looper. Yeah, the other detective is Noah Segan, who I think is a longtime collaborator with Ryan Johnson. He was in Looper. Okay. I see. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm totally on board for this. I did say when I, when I first watched this trailer that I found it a, a little bit underwhelming, but I think that's because my expectations were far, 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 far too high. Um, I think this trailer is exactly like when you actually sit down and think about it, this trailer is exactly what you want from a trailer. It doesn't tell you anything about the plot whatsoever, but it introduces you to all the characters and you get a little bit of flavor of what the world and what the movie is going to be like, but no actual details about what the movie is going to be. And so as much as I wish maybe for more out of the trailer, when I sit down and think about it, I also recognize that my experience watching this movie is going to be much better for it not having given me what I maybe wanted. Yeah, I think that, especially with a murder mystery movie like this, you don't want that many details. And, you know, we know that Christopher Plummer was killed and that, you know, someone in the drawing room is the killer. Uh, but, and that's pretty much all we need to know, at least. In my yeah, no, I t totally agree. It's a mystery movie after all. You don't want to know who the killer is in the trailer because yep. some movies basically do that at this point, I feel like. That's, yeah, you're not wrong. Okay, Scott, I think that should just about do it for episode 50 of Some Like It's Got. We are through a half century plus one of episodes. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. Next week, we'll be back with the touching comedy drama written and directed by Lulu Wang and starring Aquafina, The Farewell. Until then, however, that'll be all from us. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Mm -hmm.